garbage in, garbage out. Or rather, more felicitously, the tree of nonsense is watered with error, and from its branches swing the pumpkins of disaster. Those who eat from it come to embrace the void. anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 240 of Embrace the Void, where we refuse to do our own research. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're getting meta about studies. So let's hack some peas. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Jonathan Jerry, a science communicator with McGill University's Office of Science and Society and co-host of the independent podcast, The Body of Evidence. Jonathan, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, Void. <laughs> I I appreciate you uh, coming on. Yeah, it's a little, you know, it's it's not a mean Void. It's a friendly Void. Yeah, I, I hope so. Reaching I have yet to meet the Void pet, but uh, but hopefully, yes. Hopefully it is a friendly Void. Hello. Yes, it is. And I appreciate you coming on. It's funny, for little folks, for background, I first met Jonathan at Nexus back in the before times. And we had a really fun dinner with Michael Marshall at one of my favorite Thai restaurants in Midtown. And then, you know, years passed, things happened. And one of the listeners was like, you should have Jonathan on the show. And I was like, I've already had him on the show. <laughs> and I went to go check and I had not. I just remembered having a really fun chat with you at dinner. And that that is not an actually an episode. So... <laughs> I appreciate you coming on to do an actual recorded episode, even though my brain is terrible and didn't sort it out sooner. I, I love I love how your summary of what happened the past four years or so is things happened. Some, some <laughs> doings that transpired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bunch of stuff. And then it was now. So yeah, Jonathan, you and I have a lot of shared interests in the skeptical kind of world. Do you want to maybe start by telling folks a little bit about sort of your background and your main interests as a science communicator? Sure, I'll try to I'll try to be to be to be brief about this. So, I'm I'm a scientist by training. I've uh, got a bachelor's degree in biochemistry. I got a master's degree in molecular biology, uh, so basically DNA, RNA, proteins, and how those three things interact and get regulated. I worked in forensic biology very briefly uh, in, in the States. We were discussing this before, so I, I was in Maryland. I also ended up starting a PhD in human genetics and leaving the PhD and ending up doing a bunch of different things, uh, working in a lot of different worlds having to do with science. I started to do science communication on my own something like seven or eight years ago now. 
and tying that to my growing scientific skepticism. So, uh, so the kinds of principles that that you and I uh, try to certainly aspire to, and that eventually led to a job at McGill University. We have a very unique office in the world there in terms of of the fact that we're grafted onto a university. So we're not doing PR for the university, but we're also not doing research for the university. We our office is really dedicated to separating sense from nonsense for the public. So answering the public's questions about what is good science, what is bad science, what is pseudoscience. Uh, so I get to tackle things like homeopathy and craniosacral therapy and jade amulets, as I'm sure we'll discuss, but also to talk about like what is the evidence behind XYZ intervention, this thing that you're seeing on TikTok and 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 Twitter and Facebook. And and so yeah, so my my interests have a lot to do with what is the evidence behind these things? I'm also interested a little bit in the philosophy of science and meta science, so how we think about science, how we do science, and how those scientific tools can get misused by peddlers of pseudoscience to make their belief system appear more rigorous than they are. Yeah, great. That's a lot of topics that I want to talk about. And I think, well, you've got a nice order there. So let me let me dig into each piece a little bit. For starters, you mentioned that you'd been doing sort of SciComm for like seven years, which is quite a while. I'm curious, how do you feel like that world has changed in the past seven years that you've been doing it? Um, well, on a personal level, I think that we all go through a kind of skeptical adolescence, uh, those of us who are part mm -hmm. of the skeptical community. Um, I was just chatting with uh, Paul Ingram, uh, who's a former massage therapist who has a wonderful website called painscience.com, chatting with him for my own podcast, The Body of Evidence. Uh, and he also went through this kind of skeptical adolescence where, you know, you take pleasure in debunking stuff. Mm -hmm. And and I think funny. atheists go through this too, actually. There's yes, a kind of, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And it, really, atheism is a kind of skepticism, I think, if we're being honest. Yeah, focus on one particular claim, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so and so I used to be like that. And I, and I would say that I've moved away from that for the most part. I remember chatting with Joe Nickel, who is uh, who's a pretty big name in the skeptical community, who uh, mm -hmm. has been a paranormal investigator for, for decades now, um, who was telling me that he doesn't like the word debunker because it makes it sound like he goes to a place with a belief already in place that this is this is not happening and I'm going to debunk it. And he says, no, I'm mm -hmm. more of an investigator. And it has really stuck with me. And I, and I do try to apply that to the work that I do. I try not to debunk things, uh, but rather to investigate them and to keep enough of an open mind, but not so much that my brains fall out. Mm hmm. And I guess there's probably you could always raise concerns that if you call an investigator or something, you're lending credibility or credence that there's a possibility that this thing could be real. Like whatever language we use, it seems like there's always going to be some kinds of risks involved with what you're signaling about the thing you're investigating. Sure. I mean, I don't refer to myself as, as an investigator, but I do keep that distinction in my brain as I do the work that I do. So it's sort of a a, a mental touchstone to make sure that I don't regress back to this kind of skeptical adolescence of like, this is BS and here's why it's BS. And to be very proud of the fact that I just called it out because I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think that's sufficient, especially because people who believe in these things, they have this emotional attachment to these belief systems and just being rude. It, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I, I mentioned Marsh earlier, but I think the skepticism community in general a lot of it is moving towards this sort of more compassionate kind of skepticism that is aimed at 
you know, reducing suffering and not just dunking and, you know, understanding sort of the reasons why people get pulled into various things, especially when they're in sort of positions where they feel like they're not being taken seriously by doctors or something. So, yeah, I think that's all that is all really valuable. Now, you talked about sort of McGill's broad goal of separating sense from nonsense. Do you all have like a broad framework of how you think about or like, like, do you have a a system, a basic set of tools? What is y'all's approach, generally speaking, to trying to make that distinction? Yeah, I mean, I can talk about my personal approach to this. So, you know, I have, I have a background in science. Like I said, I've, I've, I've studied science, I have degrees in science. I have also seen how science can get deflected or how how scientists can make mistakes. I mean, I've, I've witnessed this with my own eyes. I've experienced it. And I feel that those experiences have really, they've, they've really helped me see how something that may look like a positive result can actually be the product of chance and of, and of, mm-hmm. and of a result of bad incentives, for example, which I think is a valuable skill to have because... Scientific papers can also be weaponized, and we've seen this during the pandemic, especially um, mm-hmm. where you know you have a particular position and you use your motivated reasoning and you find papers that agree with you, and then you post them online. And if you don't, if you can't really critically appraise a paper, then you're just left with looking at its conclusion, being like, "Oh, well, I guess there's a paper that says that this thing is real, so that must be that must be real." So right. I try to bring all of my experiences. Um, and all the kind of knowledge of meta science that I have, uh, and things about you know prior plausibility and 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 how how a robust methodology should look like, bring all of that to the appraisal that I make of the papers that I look at. Yeah, it seems like this is sort of a growth industry within the SciComm area, where it's like specifically about trying to help people understand how you know, a study that even looks, you know, to, you know, someone who isn't paying close attention, but has some background as being like a feasible study or a plausible study or something like that and helping them try to kind of understand the concerns there. Now, let me just ask briefly, um, is McGill's, how broad is the like range of targets that y'all are looking at? So you mentioned, you know, like homeopathy and stuff, but are you also looking at debates around ivermectin or other kinds of really sort of hot buttony covid treatment stuff yeah i mean uh, as soon as the the pandemic really hit us uh here in canada which was in march 2020 um i mean the the, the first two weeks i was feeling lost um i was hearing from a bunch of friends that they got covid and because the only sort of mental image that I had were those doctors in Italy who were, uh, you know, sort of zooming mm-hmm. in with the media and saying how horrible the situation was and patients were dying left and right. There was mm-hmm. this very brief period of like, oh my goodness, like what is happening and what is the worth, like what is my contribution to this? Because I had been working on a, on a story about some like magical socks with some weird, you know, pseudoscientific properties. And mm-hmm. and I thought, well, I mean, who cares? <laughs> we're in the middle of a, of a worldwide pandemic. And very quickly um, realized that I needed to be covering this pandemic. And so our, our office kind of mobilized itself very early on. And I started uh, really looking into this pandemic and trying to 
again, from, from this sort of scientific literacy angle, get people to understand what we knew, how we knew it, what we didn't know, uh, and, 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 and sort of guide people through that. I was very lucky that, um, I had been on, um, on television, uh, a few times. We have a, um, a local uh, news station here in Montreal, the sort of the largest English language station, uh, or lar- largest English language uh, newscast in Montreal. Um, and the anchor there wanted me every week to talk about COVID. Um, so mm-hmm. that got, uh, that became very uh, motivating to sort of, okay, to figure out, okay, what's going on? What do we know? What about this hydroxychloroquine thing? Uh, how do we catch this virus? And what about ivermectin? I wrote about ivermectin, uh, which is a fascinating uh, story. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I try, whenever I, I, I sort of debunk um, a particular piece of pseudoscience or a particular charlatan, I try to use them as case studies to make larger points that mm-hmm. can th- that people can then learn from and apply to other cases. Because I don't want to be paternalistic and just say, "Oh, this person, yeah, they're 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 full of crap and, and this is nonsense." But I also want to say, "Hey, notice this thing that they're doing, uh, because other people like him will do this as well, and mm-hmm. that is a red flag that 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 you should pick up on." Um, so so yeah, so trying trying to use these as uh, as case studies. Yeah, and I'm sympathetic to this. You know, there's there's been a lot of debate around this idea of like do your own research. Um, you know, a lot of sort of skeptic folks have recognized that this is a term that often gets used um, as a sort of stand in, you know, in what we might think of as conspiracism or, you know, uh, um, supernatural or other kinds of communities as a way to, you know, claim that they are doing something on par with kind of peer reviewed science and, and justify that or, you know, claim that they are they are debunking peer reviewed science through their individual uh, kind of analysis. And there's a lot of concern there. But it also seems to be right the case that we can't tell people to just never look anything up because people are going to have to like do some amount of their own reading. But we want to help them at least when they're doing that to do it in sort of structured, controlled functional kinds of ways. So you wrote an article for um, McGill called um, Even the Best Science Studies Can Lie. Um, and so maybe, maybe be helpful here a little bit to talk about some broad, some, some you know, a couple of examples of common things, common red flags that you see that people often don't catch that sort of make bad studies look good in this way. Yeah. So this was a... Um... So because of the public facing role that we have, we often get sent messages through various platforms. Um, some of it is just hate mail, but some of it is, hey, could you look into this? <laughs> um, or, or like, haha, I bet you've never seen that before. What do you say about this, doctors? Like, I'm not a doctor. Um, but uh, but one of these Wait, things was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the number of times I get called doctor or professor is, is, is for, from the people who claim to do their own research, right? Who can't be bothered to look at the about section of our website. Um, but one of them was a, was a meta-analysis of craniosacral therapy. And, and a meta-analysis I mean, I, I love this case because it, it shows you just how complicated this whole thing is of critically appraising studies, which is that a meta-analysis is typically at the top of the evidence pyramid. It is seen as the best form of scientific evidence there is, uh, which mm-hmm. is that you take a bunch of studies that have looked at a particular question, you, you appraise their rigor, and you give a weight to the results that they got, and you end up with an average 
value that tells you, you know, mm-hmm. basically the best answer that we have to this question right now. And so it'd be very easy for me to tell people, hey, always look for a meta-analysis on whatever question you have. Uh, and whatever the answer to this meta-analysis is, that's your answer. But it's, of mm-hmm. course, it's always more complicated than that. And this particular meta- meta-analysis seemed to show that craniosacral therapy uh, worked for uh, for pain relief. And what craniosacral therapy is, it is this alternative health modality that is based on this belief that our cerebrospinal fluid has a pulse. So cerebrospinal fluid is a fluid that we have in the tissue of our brain and our spine. Uh, so it's a very real thing, but it doesn't pulsate. But they think that it has a specific pulse that is distinct from your, your cardiac pulse and from any other uh, rhythm, biorhythm that we have. It has, its, it has its mm-hmm. own pulse and they think that they can feel it by laying their fingers around your cranium and sort of feeling a pulse there. And they can diagnose certain illnesses based on that pulse. And then they will move the bones of your skull around in order to fix the problem that you have. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right there, there are some some major issues even before we get into, into the meta-analysis, which is that- A few, a uh, few concerns, maybe. A few, a few, a few red flags. Um, one of them is that there have been some some- you know, very small studies, but very informative studies of like three, for example, three professional uh, craniosacral therapists who have to feel the pulse of 12 different patients. And none of them can agree on what the pulse is on any of these patients, right? So either they're, fe- either they're feeling the heart rate of the patient or they're feeling their own pulse through their fingers or they're there's imagining- no machine that can standardize this for us. Well, it's because it's not there, Aaron. Like the, okay. the, the, the CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, doesn't have this pulse. Uh, so they're, they're either they're making it up, they're feeling something else, but they, there's no agreement uh, within them. Um, the idea that you can use your fingers and apply enough pressure to the skulls, to, to the bones of your skull to move the plates around is, is ridiculous. I mean, th- if you could do that, think of what jogging would do to your skull. It would right. mess you up. It would mess you up. So right. none of this makes any kind of sense. Um, but there you go. You have a meta-analysis, top of the pyramid, 10 studies. And the, the, res- the, the conclusion is it works. It works to relieve chronic pain. Uh, the, 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 issue, the, the issue is that if you don't look at the individual studies, you are just going to take the conclusion at face value. But if you look at the individual studies, you see that they are garbage. And so it's garbage in, garbage out. And that is the flaw of meta-analyses, which is that if the studies that you put in are terrible studies that are poorly done, the result that you get is unusable. But you're not going to know that from just looking at the meta-analysis. So when I looked at, at those 10 studies, one of them was a feasibility study of like, can we do this? And it was published mm-hmm. as a poster at a conference. It wasn't even a peer-reviewed article, but somehow it got uh, put into this meta-analysis. Uh, one of them had a negative result uh, during their comparison, but they did a number of secondary analyses. They took blood from patients from both groups, and they looked at everything they could think of, you know, sodium levels, potassium levels. And then a few of them, there was a difference in their levels between the people who got the therapy, people who didn't. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that is fine as far as exploratory research is concerned. But you can't you can't use that and say, aha, we now have the proof that craniosacral therapy will reduce your sodium levels in the blood or whatever it was. Uh, there were there were other uh, studies where they use the, the wrong control group, which is that if you have chronic pain and you lie down on a table and it's quiet and it's calm and there's a therapist who lightly touches your head, it's going to be relaxing. You're going to feel better. So if you compare this to no intervention by comparison. Right 
craniosacral therapy is going to look like it did something. Uh, there was a tiny sample size uh, in another study that really invites any kind of noise in the data. And the last study, which was the strongest, unfortunately had non-comparable groups, which is that the people who got the, uh, the therapy versus who got, got the sham therapy, uh, they were very different in terms of how many of them were using pain medication to manage their pain. There was a lot mm -hmm. more pain medication use current and past in the sham group which means that you know maybe their pain levels were just much higher than the people who got the therapy to begin with. So all that to say that, yeah, meta-analyses are great, but uh, if you don't look up the individual studies and see what their worth is, you can get fooled by a meta-analysis that is just a pile of garbage that is repackaged to look like it's meaningful. So that's very helpful as like a concrete example and a lot of detail there. Like one takeaway immediately to me is, so we have a situation where we can't trust meta-analyses at face value. We have to look at the specific studies and not just look at them for like very obvious red flags, but like a whole laundry list of complicated, like each study has a different problem that you need a whole, you know, class worth of science com analysis to understand why that's actually a problem and debunks that study so like obviously people can't do that um for the most part so are there like clear like red flags when i'm reading the meta-analysis that should tell me or that can that i can you know notice that this is unlikely to be a good meta-analysis is there a way to tell good ones from bad ones without doing all of that work or does it come down to like finding someone like yourself and asking you to explain it to me? So I think it's both. Um, the, 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 the first solution that you propose is, okay, so is, is there a thing that you can do that is simpler than that? Um, not something that will absolutely always be right because science is sure. complicated. Um, but, if, but prior plausibility um, is, is a good gauge here. But there's so we a have to vibe. Our, we have to vibe at the study real hard and see if <laughs> no, we feel like it's plausible. Well, we have to look at the. I mean, we we did this right. So when I explained yeah. what craniosacral therapy was, and you were like, "Yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense." Um, mm -hmm. However, that supposes that we share a framework of reality, right? Uh, but if you believe that you know severely diluting diluting a substance to the point where it's no longer there, that that increases its potency. And then you can believe pretty much anything about the universe in which we live. And so, if mm -hmm, you are mm -hmm. if you are want to to believe in, in magical thinking, then your idea of prior plausibility is not the same as mine. But mm -hmm. at the very least, to somebody who is grounded in reality and to somebody who um, is scientifically minded but simply lacks the tools to properly analyze a paper, they can use prior plausibility to look as a sort of a sniff test. Like, well, mm -hmm. I mean, what, okay, sure. It's positive, but what is the claim here? Oh, that's, that sounds like an extraordinary claim. Um, I suspect the evidence is not extraordinary. So maybe I'm going to red flag this one. Um, now to your second solution. Yeah. I think, I think in the end, a lot of this boils down to finding experts that you trust and, and asking them. And, and, and there, I mean, there are people that, you know, regularly send me and, and the, like my podcast co-host Chris, um, questions that they have. Because they realize that they have the intellectual humility to know that this is not their area of expertise. Just mm -hmm. like if there was uh, an event in the real world that required advanced physics knowledge, I would not be in a position to assess the worth of the evidence coming out. I would have to find uh, physicists um, who were 
adequately nuanced, who who uh, invited my trust in them because they aren't they would be very clear about what they know, what they don't know. Uh, they would correct themselves as new evidence would come in. Those would be indicators of of how why I should trust these people. And at mm-hmm. the in the end, I would have to trust whatever consensus would emerge from this evidence because that would be the best bet that I could make. Mm. Yeah, this is particularly interesting to me because a little confession time here. Um, you know, early on in my podcasting career, probably not that early on. It should have been earlier, but I was sent by a by a psychologist by someone you know who who is generally quite reliable and and I trust in general. They you know sent me a meta analysis of. Um, parapsychological studies essentially um Things and like telepathy and telekinesis telepathy right. yeah those kind most mostly like telepathy mostly okay. i think all telepathy i think probably um and yeah you know i read it and it was interesting and i ended up um you know suggesting doing an episode on another person's podcast and we ended up doing it and talking about it and i didn't get as far as like well i'm convinced that there is mine you know powers now but it was more like well, this is interesting and it'd be cool to see some more research on it without sort of the side that you're talking about of the like, this is probably meaningless because garbage in, garbage out. Like, and I got, you know, you know, accurately panned for doing that thing and have since sort of learned a lesson there. But, um, I, you know, I highlighted because I think even as someone who is science minded and can and, I, you know, I think is somewhat decent at, um, you know, being being suspicious of uh low plausibility um things you know it still got through for me on that kind of issue so i think it can be very hard and and like i bring this up because i think a lot of folks feel embarrassment about these sorts of things right and they feel like they don't want to necessarily you know um adopt a particular perspective or something because it would involve um changing you know, or, or, or contradicting previous things that they had said or something like that. Um, but I do think it's also just valuable to just highlight that it's very easy to believe some version of some of one of these kind of meta analyses if it's done up the right kinds of ways. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a, a common phrase that can be very helpful here that, uh, you know, I've used myself and that other people have used on me, which is, what do you make of this? Uh, mm-hmm. This sort of like behind the scenes, reaching out to somebody who is in a better position of knowledge than you are on a particular issue and saying, hey, I heard this thing. I'm, I, I kind of want to believe it, but not really. Like, I'm kind of confused. Like, what, what do you make of this? Um, and, and that requires having a network of people who are experts in this. And, and because of my, the work that I do, I have generated a, a kind of network of people where I can go, hey, what do you make of this? Um, mm-hmm. And again, it's it, I bring it back to intellectual humility of knowing that there are limits to my expertise. Um, there are very clear limits to my expertise, and there are limits that are a little hazier. But still, I I, I realize often, you know, this is beyond my uh, my power to appraise. I mean, there there are, there are there are articles that I've pitched before, and I start to look into them, and it was the the, the literature was just so complex that I realize, you know what, I'm not the right person to write about this. I, I, there's too much of a risk that I'm going to get this wrong. So I'm going to pull mm-hmm. out and, and just not do it. So it's about figuring out, having the, the, the self-awareness um, of knowing where the limits of your expertise are and reaching out to people who have that expertise. Mm. And 
maybe it's worth adding another criteria on the sniff test kind of thing that it's not just unlikely um, conclusions, but that it's also high impact ones. So I think it might be right. So, so I'm thinking, for example, about like the ivermectin meta analysis, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing particularly implausible about the idea that ivermectin could, you know, have some impact on COVID, right? If you, right. you know, you come up with a causal mechanism, it's not an unreasonable claim in a materialist framework. Um, but it is a high impact one, right? Like if it's if it's true or false, that's a big deal. So like maybe only things that are both sort of relatively trivial and um, you know, not highly implausible, it seems like those would be the cases where you could kind of accept a meta-analysis at face value with low risk, would you say? Um, that's interesting. I mean, I- Ivermectin was definitely, I mean, yeah, as you point out, um, it wasn't implausible in the sense that there are tons of molecules out there uh, that have antiviral activity, meaning that mm-hmm. you put them in the lab, in cells that are infected with a virus, and they prevent that virus from making copies of itself. Um, a lot of these molecules, as it turns out, are not useful antivirals in human because we're not just cells in culture flasks. Um, mm-hmm. But they have antiviral, and, and, and ivermectin does have some antiviral activity. So it was not um, implausible in that sense. You bring up, you know, if you have a, a mechanism to explain its action. Actually, you know, there are drugs on the market for which we're not quite sure how they work, but we have seen mm-hmm. that they work and we know how safe they are. Um, so the lack of a, of a clear mechanism of action is not necessarily, it's not a reason to dismiss something. You just need to mm-hmm. have evidence of its effectiveness and you have to go- have good safety data in order to bring it to market. Um, but yeah, but then when you have uh, people like, um, uh, was it uh, Brett Weinstein, I believe, and I think it was mm-hmm. Pierre Corey on Joe Rogan, uh, I believe it was Pierre Corey who called ivermectin this kind of miracle drug and, and used different synonyms of that throughout the podcast. I mean, that is a claim of a massive clinical effect of ivermectin against COVID-19. And that right there should be a red flag because... A mm-hmm. lot of the medicines that we have, um, they work well, but like they're not game changers. And that's another thing, like the, the, the word game changer, revolutionary tends to be used a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, many of the drugs that we have, they work well for some people, they have side effects. And so to have a drug that all of a sudden um, is widely available, um, is super safe to take for anybody, for anything, even prophylactically, and that has this amazing effective, I think it was something like 95% effective in one of the studies. Uh, that to me is a red flag, given what I know about biomedicines and how difficult mm-hmm. it is, especially, especially since we have essentially, we've, we've, we've picked the, the low-hanging fruit. Like right. When it comes to drugs, the drugs that were easy to find, we found them. Because uh, we've been doing this for a while. Uh, so now it's becoming harder and harder to find good drugs. There's kind of like a penicillin problem, right? Almost almost like a Galileo's gambit for medicine, where I feel like you'll, you'll see people argue, well, look, you know, penicillin was this random thing that we found, you know, some <laughs> right. mold growing on a thing. So like, how do you know that we've picked all the low hanging fruit, right? There's a kind of appeal to the unknowable possibility of what could still be out there sure Um, and and the natural world mm -hmm. is full of molecules that have potential applications and and they are being studied and sure more money could be injected into that to find more molecules that that could be promising but when you look at the pipeline of drug development it starts with a lot 
of potential in in vitro studies and then fewer of them make it to animal studies and even mm-hmm. fewer of them make it to phase one and then phase two and then phase three of human clinical trials and so you end up with this pyramid shaped you know funnel where Scheme, you have i think would be the term you're looking for there. what was it a pyramid scheme. Yeah, I understand. I no, it's, it is not a pyramid scheme. Uh, it is it is a rigorous scientific process of just weeding out things that look promising in systems that are not representative of the human body. Right? We mm. have to start with cells, and then we have to go to animals, and then we have to go to humans. Um, but that also means that we may see some very interesting and promising results in in cells and culture flasks that will never translate into a useful drug in humans. Mm. And it's just totally a coincidence that you use the same symbol as the Illuminati when you would describe. <laughs> a this lot of things look like pyramids, Aaron. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, uh, Are the pyramids in Egypt a pyramid scheme, Aaron? <laughs> I mean, obviously, that's why we talk about them. Um, this brings up something else that I think also ties back to the meta, meta, meta studies and could be another useful kind of fairly low hanging red flag fruit for people to to catch um which is the problem of like isolated research ecosystems so i think we're all familiar with isolated media bubbles but do you want to maybe say a little bit about like how research ecosystems can produce these meta studies specifically to do exactly what we're trying to get them people to avoid them doing um and maybe you could point out to some like other um fields in which you also see these kind of ecosystems well, um, I'm not sure if that's the answer you're looking for, but certainly there are journals dedicated to homeopathy. There are journals mm-hmm. dedicated to, to naturopathy. Um, and so people with fringe beliefs that are not substantiated by good scientific evidence or even any kind of prior plausibility, they have created their own journals and they are doing studies that they are then publishing in those journals. So there, you know, I was talking about weaponized studies and that is one way in which this applies, I think, which is that you are you are using the scientific, um, uh, the, the credential that is associated with the, with, the, with the scientific system of investigation, and you're applying it to very weak studies that are always promising. They're always, they're small and they're methodologically flawed, but they're promising and they never really build up to the big, large studies. And whenever somebody does a big, large study, it sh- it's shown not to work. So then you regress back to smaller studies and you keep saying that maybe one day we'll have enough convincing evidence that this or this particular pseudoscientific interventions really does work. So, so mm-hmm. that is part of the, eco- the ecosystem. You have these bubbles of people who share a belief and who come up with an infrastructure that mirrors what actual science is. And so that gives it uh, credibility. Mm-hmm. But there is also, yeah, yeah but, but but there is also, uh, and maybe we'll talk about this some more uh, later, but there is also flaws in just how scientific research is being done because it is, it's a human system and it's it has flawed incentives in it. And so that can also lead scientists astray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess what I'm wondering is, could I, for example, look at a meta-analysis and go to like the bibliography where it lists the studies that it used in its meta-analysis? And if the names are all, you know, homeopathy weekly, home, you know, homeopathy monthly, like there's no articles from Nature, there's no articles from any article or any journal that any anyone recognizes or something. And is that a pretty reliable way maybe to, to potentially uh, avoid... Uh, a bad meta-analysis? Yes. And the way that I see this is thinking of dials on an old-fashioned radio um, mm. where you have a, a dial for trust and you have a dial for relevance 
And mm-hmm. as you go through a paper and you see things like the things that we've been discussing and like, you know, looking through the the bibliography and it's all a bunch of references to the the journal of, you know, uh, homeopathy and the journal of this <laughs> journal of that, um, which are these, these, these very fringe pseudoscientific journals, you dial the trust, uh, you turn the, the trust dial down. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily that I would just dismiss this out of hand, but like, yeah, it, it, it is, a, it's a red flag. So it, it makes you more skeptical mm-hmm. of the content of this meta-analysis. Yeah, so that makes sense. Um, so let me ask you sort of a, this is a bone that I've been picking with lots of folks in this area recently, sort of a, a broad like policy question of what is the what are the best levers we have for dealing with these issues? Do you feel like we're better off just trying to get people to be less, you know, less credulous towards meta analyses? Or do you also think that we need better safeguards regarding these kinds of publications? Do we need to have some way of, well, A, is there any way to regulate these kind of independent research ecosystems? Um, do you, would you be in favor of anything like that or just more sort of cracking down at legitimate publications? I think that as many solutions as we can come up with, uh, we should try and apply them because the problem is massive and it's multifactorial. And so we need to act on a lot of different levels. Um, yeah, I think I think better regulation is good. I mean, it it's it's difficult, you know, when when it comes to scientific journals. I mean, there's no body that regulates all the scientific journals. Anybody can start a journal. Uh, that's why there are predatory journals, for example, that are only there to make money, and they will publish mm-hmm. anything. Um, so how do you crack down on that? It's it's really really hard. Um, so so yeah, so better regulation, and 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 same thing goes for for social media, um, but also. It's 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 about empowering individual people to be better educated and to make better decisions, which is hard because there's no room in school curricula. And so you kind of have to do this outside of that. This is kind of the work that I do and the work that many, many people do. Is it enough? No, it's not, but it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, something that I say a lot is 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 inviting people to slow down on social media. Uh, when mm-hmm. they see something, you don't have to engage with it, right? Social media mm-hmm. platforms are engineered to get you to react quickly. Uh, it, it, they, they love to right. show you angry uh, content and content that, that triggers disgust in you. And very few people actually click on the link that is being shared and read the article. They just read the headline. Um, if you haven't read the full article, don't share it. That's what I try to do. I'm not perfect. I do have, there are people that I trust. And then when I recognize uh, the, from the headline, I, I know what the content of the article is going to be, then I'll, I'll share it without reading it if I don't have time. But by and large, I don't share something unless I have read it. So odds are nobody's going to die from you failing to share something on Facebook, right? And so if we on slow topic, down, yeah. go ahead. No, I just think on this topic, I'm particularly like darkly amused by the the like Twitter, for example, I think was one of them that now if you, you know, try to share something without have reading read it this? first, yes. have you read this? But like, isn't that pretty much a drug dealer being like, before you take this drug, <laughs> are you sure you want to take the drug? Like, <laughs> aren't they just playing both sides of the table at that point? <laughs> well, obviously, social media companies want to make as much money as they can. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're going to do as little as they have to. Um, to um, to basically impede their ability to make money. So when there's enough public pressure building up, they do a little band aid solution, right? Now I have heard, 
I haven't seen the data, but I've heard that there is data that shows that these kinds of pop-ups on Twitter do have an, a positive impact on mm -hmm. reducing sharing of content. Um, it's methadone. So, I get it. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I wouldn't be, sometimes I can be quick to dismiss what appears to be a very cheap band-aid type solution to a problem be like, oh, this is just for show. Uh, but mm -hmm. apparently this has, you know, it, it, it's a step in the right direction. Um, sure. I would like to see better solutions, but that's, I mean, right. in a, ca in a capitalist system, I mean, that's what you have, kind of have to deal with. You have a company that just doesn't want to lose users and lose money. And so they're going to do as little as they can uh, in the face of, of mounting public pressure. And I, I fully believe that they will be able to figure out having pulled everyone really far in one direction, how to slightly nudge people a little bit back in the other direction in a way that works for them. Um, I'm, you know, they, they have all the research in the world on that. Um, but let me, let me ask you about sort of a hard, maybe this gets at a little bit, your, your comment about flaws in the research itself. You know, maybe this is a very big question, obviously, but how do we sort of currently draw the line between studies that should be published and studies that shouldn't separate from meta-analyses? Do you think we, like we need to adjust that line in some way? So I know around the replication crisis, there was lots of talk of p-hacking. Mm -hmm. um, what is the sense at this point about where we're trying to draw the lines on on quality of research? Uh, I don't think that there is a line. Um, I think it's a very nebulous thing. Um, so for example, uh, there last time that I checked, which was many years ago for a video that I was making, there were there were about 20,000, over 20,000 or 30,000 uh, academic journals out there. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get published, you can get published. You're not going to get published in science or cell or nature because they have very strict criteria for, for, for publication. But you can find some random journal that will publish you. So I don't think that the um, the, 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 the barrier to entry is particularly high. It's very, very low. Uh, journals mm -hmm. have purviews. So if you go to a journal website under submission guidelines, you will see uh, a description of what the journal is about. And so you can get rejected that way, right? So a journal can say, we mm -hmm. are interested in publishing research that has to deal with X, Y, and Z. And if your paper does not deal with that, then you're not a fit for that journal. You can get rejected in that way. So that's one line that exists. Um, another line, which is more troublesome, is that um, journals are inclined to want sexy results. Uh, that mm. is unfortunately a, uh, a bad incentive that we have in scientific research, which is that we prioritize positive findings, surprising findings over negative findings. And we see right. negative findings as being uninteresting, whereas they mm -hmm. shouldn't be. Uh, if your study was rigorous, whatever result you get is of interest. But is that, is that driven by citation incentives? Is that just like the publication wants people to cite their their journal and they know that the, those citings will get picked up more? Possibly. Um, I suspect that there is a deeper human bias at work here, that it's, this mm -hmm. is about human psychology. Um, because uh, one thing that I like to say a lot is that science is a human enterprise. Um, and, and it is done by human beings, uh, and with systems that humans have created, uh, in order to frame the scientific research. And so there are bad incentives in there. Um, and so one of those incentives, would, which is, which is usually an unspoken, although sometimes you see this in the guidelines for a journal, like we, we want to publish like surprising results or something to that, to that, to that effect. But oftentimes it kind of goes unsaid and that can invite a publication bias which is that if you get a negative result you're not going to bother writing a manuscript and trying to shop it around because you think well nobody's going to want to publish this 
Uh, so it can it, it has the the potential impact of skewing the literature uh, and making it appear as though there are more positive findings than there there than there really are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and most you know speaking of lines and where the line is for what should be published and what shouldn't be published, most journals will, in my opinion, reject fringe theories that are not adequately backed by evidence. So I don't think we should be worried about any kind of garbage getting published in the scientific uh, literature, although there are exceptions to that. Like I said, there are predatory journals that will just accept mm-hmm. your money and publish anything. Uh, there's the journal uh, Medical Hypotheses, for example. It's not the only one, but it's the one that uh, keeps popping up, which is they will publish basically anything, any weird idea that somebody had. Uh, they mm-hmm. will publish it there. And, I, and I've been sent this by a journalist of all people. Uh, sent a paper from published medical hypotheses as proof. Look, there's evidence behind this thing. It's like, no, no, you don't understand with med- medical hypotheses, they publish anything. Um, uh-huh. Another exception, of course, is those CAM journals that I was mentioning. So there are journals specifically built by people who have fringe beliefs and pseudoscientific beliefs. Um, so there are places where fringe theories mm-hmm. are going to get published, but I don't think it's a widespread phenomenon that anything goes. But then mm-hmm. you have the possibility that you can have flawed science being published because peer review is an un uh it, it's a good system but it is imperfect and so mm-hmm. it will you you will get things published that are p hacked as you were mentioning that are fraudulent uh, like andrew wakefield's infamous study right um so it is an imperfect system but i'm i don't quite know how we would improve it um Short right. of really uh, injecting resources into peer review, for example, because peer review is something that scientists will do in their spare time in between supervising multiple students, writing grant proposals, which take forever, writing their own papers, getting their own papers rejected and ask for modifications and teaching and all of those things. That, oh, and by the way, could you do this for free for us? Um, right. uh, so so there's there's that that could be uh, that could be uh, improved upon the issue of p hacking, which is for people who don't know the fact that we we often rely on the p-value as an indicator of whether or not results are significant. Um, there have been a lot of discussions over that because you can then you can do certain things even without being malicious about it mm-hmm. to get a positive p-value, to get a, a significant p-value out of your data set. Uh, and that's called p-hacking. And so some Which people you are argued, pressured to do given the incentive. Incentives, to... exactly. And right. I've yeah. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen researchers right. who had good intentions sort of uh-huh. uh, buckling under the weight of the system that they're operating in because they want tenure and they and there are incentives to getting tenure. You need to publish a lot and in good journals, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So go ahead. So let me let me jump in here because yeah. I think this is, you know, people are all, a lot, I think, to some extent familiar with these um, concerns and it takes us, I think, into a place that you also mentioned before about philosophy of science kinds of questions. So yeah, you you sent me an article about uh, using a jade amulet to protect against COVID. Um, specifically, what was interesting about it though was that it highlighted that the author did some name dropping of Kuhn, the philosopher of science, and their work on paradigm shifts in science to make a kind of Galileo's gambit argument, which is something that we've talked about on the show before, where someone says, well, look, 
you know, everybody thought Galileo was wrong. And, and so you never know kind of thing. Um, could you explain a little bit? Because here, here's why, here's how I tie these things together. A lot of the things that you're pointing out, humans are doing science, humans are flawed, humans have bad incentives and are overworked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those could go together with a kind of Kuhnian analysis to get very skeptical about scientific results in a very broad kind of way. And then, you know, what you're pointing out is then people can use that as an open door through which to say, well, how do you know that my jade, you know, emerald, whatever study is like not actually good? So do you want to maybe lay out how that how that argument works with the Kuhn stuff a little bit and how you think we should try to try to avoid that problem? Yeah, so let me guide you through the story, and then if I haven't mm -hmm. fully answered your question, you can uh, you can bring up the, uh, the 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 remaining crumbs there. Uh, so this is a fast. So once in a while, I go to Reddit Science uh, to see what's being talked about, uh, looking for inspiration for articles that I might write, and I found this piece. This was in I believe it was October 2020. Um, they they had a link to a paper, a published paper, peer reviewed paper. Um, about this claim that a jade nephrite amulet may prevent COVID-19. And I thought this was so silly. I screenshot it, I put it on Twitter, and I wrote something like, I can't even, like I'm speechless. Mm -hmm. This is just, I mean, what, what is happening? And it was interesting because then I got a, a barrage of people replying and also being disgusted and piling on and calling the author's names, all that kind of stuff, which was a real lesson in how when you have, and I don't have, <laughs> I don't have a large following, but I uh -huh. have a following. And when you do that, uh, you can very easily create a pylon right. uh, where people just recognize this thing as being BS and then they just go for it and they're on your side and they go and they... Right. So, so and you I, were just trying to vent because you were in the middle yes. of trying to do psychom in a pandemic. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Um, but then the more I thought about this and the more I, I looked at that paper, the more I realized that there was a story there. And I wanted to because because there were accusations in the in the thread that the authors had 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 manufactured a hoax. This was a hoax mm -hmm. paper. It wasn't true. It was just some bit of nonsense that had been published to show that journals will publish anything. Mm -hmm. And I disagreed because I've seen my fair share of, 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 of well, uh, well-intentioned BS. And so I, mm -hmm. I, I, I contacted the lead author who, as it turns out, did most of the, the heavy lifting on this paper and we zoomed for over an hour. And so I, I interviewed him for my piece and he really convinced me that, no, he was, this was real. He, he really believed in this theory. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also got to chat. So, so I mean, just basically as, as a way of summarizing, how did that come from? His theory, to the best of my understanding, was, and I have my, my article in front of me because I, could, I cannot remember this. So, okay, so his theory is that when the magnetic field of our planet weakens, uh, which apparently happens over you know, eras, some, the amount of water that is found on land masses like lakes increases. This leads to mm -hmm. more iron oxide being made in certain rocks. And those iron oxides have their own magnetic field, which now interacts with the iron in our bodies more readily. And this interaction mm -hmm. affects a property of the electrons in our atoms. And this can allegedly cause DNA sequences in our own genomes to turn into fully functional viruses that make us sick. Mm. And as, that vo as void poetry, that really slaps. I appreciate <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> Put a baseline on that. I'd be um, into it. And then, and then the amulets were, that were worn by people 5,500 years ago might interact with iron oxide's magnetic field and deflect them away from the body. 
Um, and I had to ask him, are you wearing an amulet right now? And he said, no, I've chosen not to wear it because I, I try to reduce my iron intake and I don't know how to pick the right amulet. I would have to go to someone who truly understands this. Wow. So, yeah. That's, so I, I love the layers. I, I really appreciate the artist, artist, you know, art, the artistry of all of these kind of things these days. I feel like people are really upping their game in the modern environment. Yeah. So, so I thought, so the question was like, should this have been published? This is a guy who was trying to make a name for himself, who had internalized this Galileo gambit of like, I'm going to be the guy who changes the face of science. And there was mm -hmm. also a racial element there, which came out of him uh, unprompted. He said it to me, he said it to Retraction Watch, I'd interviewed him as well, because the, the, the guy was black. And so he... He was under the impression that people would not believe that he was capable of ushering in a scientific revolution. Uh, he had he had un, un uh, peer reviewed papers on his uh, personal website, in which he crafted a theory of everything, right, which is the mm -hmm. physics holy grail of like how to how to uh, bring gravity into the same framework you, as quantum mechanics. You didn't and, ask and, him and, and I asked him. I said, "Well, how like the Hotep? Is he sorry?" I'm just very curious now if this person is Hotep adjacent in some kind of way. Uh, oh, yeah, I've read about this. Uh, well, you can look look him up. It's Dr. Right. Moses Turkle-Bility. Yeah, um, I have follow-up questions. All right, keep going. So anyway, so um, so there was, there was all of that going on, right? So this is clearly somebody who um, feels like he's going to uh, usher in a new theory of everything. The germ theory of disease is false. And so he's come up with something and it ties everything together. And, I, and mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of corresponding with Naomi Oreskes on this. She's a historian of science at Harvard. She's the co-author of the famous book, uh, Merchants of Doubt, which is about how the tobacco industry lied for, for mm -hmm. many, many years about the link between their products and, and, uh, and, cancer, and lung cancer. Super and as, helpful and, for fighting conspiracies. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Uh, so, so exactly. So as she was telling me, she said, you know, you don't get a paradigm shift because you want one. Like that's not how this works. And, and unfortunately, mm -hmm. Thomas Kuhn's work has been has been appropriated by people who think that science advances in these giant revolutions, these scientific revolutions, as opposed to moving incrementally. And maybe there are more revolutions in physics than there are in the biomedical sciences. I'm not sure. I know that a lot of the examples of scientific revolutions that get thrown around are from physics, you know, Einstein and, and, and Copernicus and, and, and Galileo. But certainly mm -hmm. in the biomedical sciences, we don't tend to have these big revolutions. That's not how science works. So when there is a paradigm shift, it's because the current theory cannot explain something. And you really, there's a wall that you hit. And every and most scientists in that field realize that, yeah, our theory cannot explain this. And then the mm -hmm. new paradigm, what it should do is it should provide good evidence behind it. You can't just throw a wild theory around and expect the entire field to believe you. So, I mean, even like, like mm -hmm. even uh, things like biologics and the RNA vaccine, right? So biologics, yeah. which are drugs that are revolutionary, they are uh, often, they're antibodies, not uniquely, but some of them are antibodies. They're grown in living organisms. Um, you inject them or, or you infuse them. And we can now treat autoimmune diseases in a way that we couldn't before. RNA vaccines, which we saw uh, finally coming to market during the pandemic for, for humans. Even those things are not products of a paradigm shift. They are the end point mm -hmm. of decades of research and technological improvements that have led to finally us having safe and effective versions of these ideas. So, so uh -huh. to your to your point, you know this this 
Thomas Kuhn idea of scientific revolutions. Yeah, sometimes there are scientific revolutions, but that, that is not how most science works. And so when you see somebody citing Kuhn like this as, as a way of giving legitimacy to a fringe theory that they have, that's another red flag. Great. So I want to, we're short on time, but I have to drop another big question here because this <laughs> okay. relates directly to something that I've been seeing. Because like you sent me that article about the Jade thing, mm -hmm. and I re literally read it back to back with another article that somebody had sent me about critical race theory and discussions of objectivity in science. Mm -hmm. um, and for folks who are not familiar, you know, critical race theory and, and like theories that derive from it have been in various ways critical of current scientific understanding or the scientific uh, world because of, you know, like real historic oppression and exclusion and all sorts of like genuine problems and that sort of thing. Um, and the article also cited how those folks will often cite Kuhn as a way to kind of, along with the other things you've been pointing to, raise, uh, you know, like significant concerns of skepticism. Um, and they will often then sort of fill the the hole with alternative ways of knowing is one way that it's often talked about or indigenous ways of knowing. Um, and I think you and I probably both agree that pushback on colonial Western hegemony around science is a good thing. Yes. But I'm also curious to hear your thoughts about like, are there concerns that because you, you mentioned the racial element of this, this Jade uh, story do you worry that that's also creating more space for misinformation in marginalized communities, that it might be contributing to the epistemic crisis, broadly speaking, in a way that isn't intended by those individuals, but could be a significant problem? So I will be brief and I will be somewhat vague okay. because that is it's a it's a minefield of, of, of a topic. And, and we, sure. we, sh we should no, no but we, and we should talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have fully formed opinions about this, and there are people that are in a better position to answer this question. But here's what I will say. Yes, I think that there are risks on either side of the aisle with progressives and with regressives. As I mentioned, science is a human activity. We have flawed systems. This idea that science is this objective monolith uh, is false, but it does aspire to objectivity. It is the best system of inquiry that we have for understanding the universe around us. But because in practice it's made by humans, yes, there is racism in scientific research. Yes, there is misogyny in scientific research. We've seen so many examples of that. Now, the other extreme, as you point out, is, oh, science is just one way of knowing, and there are different ways of knowings. And the, this idea that the personal experiences and traditions of minority groups should not just be listened to, which I think that they should, but also mm -hmm. that they should be just believed in unquestionably and that they are just as reliable as scientific research. I think that is wrong and that is dangerous. So in conclusion, what I would say is that science needs to be improved, not toppled. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And yes, I think we could go on on, on many of these things. I have all sorts of follow-up questions. We can do a little bit in the in the VIP room afterwards. Um, but well, will there be snacks? There, there will be champagne service. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but I always try to end before I have to torture people with like resources to recommend for folks who you know, want to dive deeper down these various rabbit holes. <laughs> Is there anything in particular that you found valuable in your process of, of you know, learning about this world? Sure. Um, so I wrote down two books uh, that I think people will find interesting with regards to what we've been discussing. So the first one is if you want to know more about how statistics can be used 
to lie in science or how scientists can misappropriate statistics to make results that are negative appear positive. Uh, the best book that I personally have found on the topic is a very slim book. It's called Statistics Done Wrong by Alex Reinhardt. Uh, it's very well written, very clear, and it talks about things like uh, the base rate fallacy that you might have heard about. It talks about p-hacking, which we we're discussing. Uh, and it's a very compact book, very well written. Uh, the other book uh, that I would recommend is about is is the best book about complementary and alternative medicine that I've read, and it also explains what it means to do rigorous science. And that is Trick mm -hmm. or Treatment by Simon Singh and Etzan Ernst. Uh, I have found it difficult to get a hold of, unfortunately. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but Trick or Treatment is a fantastic book. Uh, there's a whole chapter on chiropractic. There's a whole chapter on homeopathy. Uh, but but it, it's also great because it goes over the the history of clinical trials and why we do clinical trials. And, so, and the way that it's written, it is not a sort of nof nof oh, oh uh, alternative medicine is bogus and here's why it really guides the reader through okay so how would we investigate those claims oh look we can do this oh, but then there's that study and this is so it's so both of those books uh, statistics done wrong and trick or treatment have my seal of approval okay great it's a good title too trick or treatment gets extra credit for that one <laughs> um so all right that's wonderful unfortunately now it means i have to torture you uh oh, so no. this is the enlightening round Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only choices. You don't get to hedge. I know you've heard the show, so I, you are nodding in painful agreement, but you are here now in the reality. So but are you I ready for it? I found a solution and, I, yeah. and, I've, and I've prepared for this. Okay, great. I'm, I'm excited I, to yeah, hear your solution I will be, to your I will reality. be able to avoid the cognitive dissonance that all of your guests feel. Bold talk, sir. Bold yes, talk. So indeed. to start out, uh, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real. I was assuming you were going to say no and try to avoid us there. Uh, the external world, real or not real? Real. Colors? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races. Real. Species. Real. Morality. Real. Rights. Real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Real. Society. Real. Money. Real. <laughs> Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Very real. <laughs> Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. I think I see what you did there. No, that I did not just decide to say real to everything. Mm. Where the cognitive distance comes from, I suspect, is that people realize that they're using different definitions of real depending on the item. Uh -huh. And they clash. And they're like, well, oh. And you just don't care? No, I settled on a definition of real before this exercise began. And I applied it. And you feel like you applied it consistently throughout? Yes. Yes. All right. Well, I'll be curious to hear in the VIP section what that <laughs> definition is because For I'm very excited only. to- For patrons only. 
uh, patrons can find out if there's a solution to the enlightening round. You will hear it right now. Uh, if you come join us on Patreon, you know, it's the way to find these things out. Um, no, but Jonathan, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. And I'm, yeah, I'm excited to chat a little bit more, but do you want to let folks know where they can find your material? Yes, I'll give you three places. So the work that I do is at the McGill Office for Science and Society, or OSS. You can find it at mcgill.ca slash OSS. And we have a weekly newsletter you can subscribe to. Uh, the podcast that I co-host is called The Body of Evidence. You can just look for it wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter at Cracked Science. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Void. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest Voidling patrons, John Butler, Chronicler, and John, just John. And special thanks to our newest Archon-level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, and something called Serious Inquiries Only, which is, yeah, it's a great, it's a great podcast. Check it out. Absolutely check out their most recent episode on abortion. It's excellent. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, This Is Your Brain Speaking, Ha Whoa, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard, Neil Polzin, uh, Chad T, Jesse Urbinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter what the studies say, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm -hmm.